This is Mark in, uh, beginning in chapter two, verse 18. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and disciples of, of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. The word of God for the people of God. A strange passage, yet again, is confronting us in the book of Mark. As we've been traveling along, uh, we have seen Jesus do great things, and over the last couple of weeks, we've also seen conflict arise. And in this specific area of text, we are seeing five conflict stories that is setting Jesus on this trajectory of having people against him and against his ministry. Uh, these stories are framed by a common uh, refrain that is in all of them. It says, why does this fellow talk like that when he is pronouncing forgiveness to the sins of the paralytic? It goes into the next uh, text, which we looked at last week. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he not observing the cultural, religious laws of our time? Why is he allowing these people to become part of his story? In the text that we're looking at tonight, why is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Next week, we'll look at a couple of these. Why are they doing what is unlawful, specifically with regard to Jesus' disciples um, breaking Sabbath law? And then the final uh, conflict story, which doesn't use this language of why, but it's very much um, implied from the context. Why is Jesus healing on the Sabbath? Why is he doing all these things and causing the ire of the Pharisees against him? Why is Jesus acting in such a way to, to bring this about and ultimately bringing the Pharisees to a place of wanting to kill this man? So you can see the, the text that we're looking at tonight is kind of that hinge text on which all of this fits this is the story that gives us even more of a glimpse of what Jesus is actually doing, yet it is a very, very, very strange text that upon a first glance we might not catch all of the nuance that it's bringing to us. It's specifically talking about fasting and why it is that Jesus' disciples are not fasting. This was something that was common during this time. Pharisees, in fact, would fast twice a week it seemed as though the disciples of John were also engaged in fasting. And according to one scholar, it says, these groups did not engage in fasting solely out of individualistic motives, as a mode of repentance or as a mode of bringing prayer to fruition. It was something different. It says they were rather probably fasting in order to prepare for and even hasten the redemption of Israel and the world. This was something that was a part of their normal routines as if to say we are in exile, we are not where we should be, we are waiting for God to do everything that he's promised to us from hundreds of years in the past. And we are trying to bring that about through our actions, through our prayers and through our um, weekly fasting rituals. 
And Jesus and his disciples are not, not doing that, especially last week, if you think about it, they were, they were partying. They were all laying down on those couches, eating fruits and grapes and things, and just kind of having a, a, a weird feast time in the midst of what other religious leaders at the moment could only see as a time of waiting, a time of um, hoping that God would actually do something. And here Jesus is putting that on its head and, and saying something different. Jesus is demonstrating himself to be radical, And the claims that he is making, they are bold and unexpected. And we've been looking at these over the past few weeks. They're claims like the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe. The things that you've been waiting for are actually here with me. They're happening right now. As 21st century American readers, we don't get the weightiness of those claims. Jesus is doing something very, very, very new in the midst of these people that are so set in their traditions and their ways and their routines. Jesus says to a group of crazy fishermen on the boat, hey, come follow me. And to a tax collector who is just the object of people's disdain, I want you to be a part of this. Follow me. To the demon-possessed man, he says, be quiet and come out of him, commanding the demons to act in a sense, acting out his authority and his power over not just the people around him, but the spiritual forces of the time. Jesus demonstrating himself to be someone who is teaching something in a radical new way, but also someone who is doing things in a radical new way, casting out demons and also proclaiming the forgiveness of sins to people, to people who showed up lowered down through a roof who were lame and paralyzed and couldn't walk, and Jesus kind of in a sense, misses the moment and says, your sins are forgiven. But then to put even more authority to those words, he demonstrates his power by saying, get up, pick up your mat, and go. Jesus is being radical in these moments. He said last week, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. And I will demonstrate that by the people that I hang out with the people that I eat meals with, the people that I break bread with, the people that I spend time with, the people that I develop relationships with, the people that you, religious leaders, say are not in and we shouldn't even talk to them or touch them or be near them. Yet I say they are a part of this kingdom movement. And last week we were hopefully challenged to see like our own um, table rituals and the people that we have surrounding us and at times how clean and how prim and proper and how, um, how holy we try to be and therefore miss a lot of folks on the margins who are desperately yearning to hear that inclusive gospel of love and acceptance and possibility that someone loves them and could forgive them for all of their sins. This weird phrase tonight in our text is new wine into new wineskins. Some people say that that's kind of like the battle cry of Jesus and his disciples in this moment. Um, it seems strange to us because we don't necessarily understand what's going on with this, with this battle cry. This is beer. It is a picture of the four main ingredients in beer. Two summers ago, I decided to... Um, break free of, this is going to sound awful, but I'm just going to go with it, just stay with me. I decided to break free of the Christianized bubble that I was um, raised in. I went to Christian school from kindergarten through 12th grade. And for any of you private school kids in the room, you know the added complexity that that brings to life. Um, 
I graduated with 16 beautiful people. And for those of you that have gone to a school bigger than that, you can at least sympathize with that as a, as a weirdness. Everyone knew everyone's business and everyone was in everyone's business and everyone thought that they had the right to speak to everyone's business and they didn't, but they did. After Christian high school, I decided to branch out and go to Bible college. And as you know, Bible college is kind of that crazy fraternity scene and it was just like pledge week and crazy and no, none of that was true. It was like you showed up on campus and there was guys outside on the stoop playing um, worship songs. And that was the way to entice the ladies. If you could get on your stoop and play, Lord, I lift your name on high. It's like the ladies came flocking to you. And it's like, all right. And you could pick out the guys that were just trying to hustle and the guys that were actually trying to praise Jesus. They usually just stayed in their room. But still, Bible college was a weird mixture of homeschool meets uh, university and um, not much, not much there as far as normalness, I guess you could say. From there, I went straight to seminary, the den of Satan that that is, and I was exposed to all sorts of other people that were trying to get into the ministry, and it was just a strange time for me. I've been in, in Christian education for my entire life. I've worked in churches. I've done all kinds of churchy things. I'm a Bible teacher. I've kind of made my living, so to speak, um, in this world, this very safe Christian world. And two summers ago, I decided to branch out and go work at Evo. When my mom, this is the backstory, when my mom found out that I was going to work at Evo, she cried. Like, literally, I was 31 at the time, and she was like, oh. She calls me Lil Bud, as some of you know, so it was, oh, Lil Bud. Oh. Like, she just had this, um, I don't know. That, that puts you into my world for a second. But I worked at Evo, and I worked in the back, and I was very adept at making boxes. Josh Hill knows what I'm talking about. Um, and I was back there working and learning, and I also gave tours. And this is coming in handy for me, especially for tonight, because there's certain things that you learn in the science of making beer. I'm going to break it down to you in very simple terms. Basically, you have four main ingredients in beer. You have water, you have malted barley, you have hops, and you have yeast. What's going on scientifically is those malted barleys have starches and you convert starches to sugars by almost boiling them, you cook them. So you put the malted barley in hot water and you stew it around for a few hours so that it becomes this soupy sugar water, more or less. It's a substance that they call wort. Then you add some hops, kind of counters out the, the malty sweetness and the bitterness and eventually you'll add yeast and that yeast begins to eat up the sugar the yeast, when it's eating up the sugar, needs an outlet. It needs uh, an, an escape. It needs the CO2 to be uh, emitted from what's going on. So you can see here a couple of these, they're called carboys. So for folks that are home brewers, they make this beer, they make this concoction, they put the yeast in, and then they put a blow-off tube on it so that the CO2 from the yeast eating up the sugars, it can escape. If you don't do that, bad things can happen. So me and a few friends a few years ago were trying our hand at making some of this stuff. We didn't know what was going on with the science of beer, so we didn't have this CO2 outlet. We just put a top on it. So we have all this yeast eating up sugar, and it's just like bubbling up there, and it stayed in my friend's house, and he's got a couple of small kids. We could have killed one of them in hindsight, but it was, you know, live and learn. So one night, it's like you put the CO2 stopper on there, and it's like it starts hissing because it's wanting this pressure to get out of there. It's just building up this pressure. The little seven-year-old kid at the time goes over and looks at it and hears it hissing and says, 
Dad, this thing's hissing like a snake. It's fine, we know what we're doing. Later that evening, bam! CO2 emits, like the stuff goes flying everywhere. There's stout all over this guy's like vestibule. There's beer all in the corners and all over the wall. Like it just, it had blew, blown up because you had all this activity and you had this, this vessel that was trying to contain it and it couldn't. You needed some sort of an outlet. Jesus is tapping into this sort of idea here to explain something that's very true about his ministry. It says the newness of Jesus' mission cannot be contained within the old structures of Judaism. This text is Jesus talking through things that people understood. You don't put unshrunk cloth on a garment that's been worn, that's already been treated, that's already been shrunk, because if, if, you, if you do, it's just gonna pull and it's gonna tear and it's be, gonna become disastrous. You don't put new wine that's still fermenting, that's still needing that CO2 to escape into old wineskins that have already been stretched. You don't do that because it will blow up in a sense and you'll lose the wine and you'll lose the skin. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm doing something that's new. And you can't fit what I'm doing into your old structures. You can't fit what I'm doing into your old religion. You can't fit what I'm doing into your traditions that you have had for years and years and years. And Pharisees, if you don't understand this, it will only be disastrous for you and for me. Another author says, with the arrival of Jesus Christ, the behavior appropriate to and symbolic of the old age is now inappropriate. For the arrival of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is symbolized by feasting and celebration. What Jesus brings is kingdom. What Jesus brings is new. What Jesus brings is not the old. He's doing something in a radically different way that doesn't fit into the confines of what the Jews at that time thought it should fit into. New wine into new wineskins. In Jesus' context, um, we can see how this works out in the next week's text as Jesus is um, seemingly breaking Sabbath law. He's doing things that the Pharisees are looking at and saying, that doesn't seem to fit, you're wrong, you're breaking the law, and Jesus is going in a different direction. Jesus is starting something that's totally new, dangerous, a little bit rebellious. I was thinking about this in a small group last week and just in my own mind wondering if I had been in that moment with Jesus, if I would have been able to shirk the old traditions of the past and go with this radical newness that Jesus was bringing about, or if I would have been the guy looking at the book, point my finger. We see how this plays out, not just in the book of Mark, but in that famous passage um, that Jesus teaches in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus engages in this teaching where he says, you have heard it said in the past, but I say to you now something totally different. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even think about committing adultery. Don't even think with lustful intent in your heart. You have heard it said, don't um, repay eye for an eye, and I say to you, don't even be angry. Like, he just goes one step beyond. Jesus is doing something radically new where he's taking that old structure and he's going beyond it, and if you try to contain him within it, it will surely burst. It's new wine into new wineskins. In our context, I think that we see some of this newness um, even now. 
We talk a lot in this room about the gospel and how transformative it is and how life-changing it is and how it opens up opportunities for people who are so far out on the margins and the outskirts to come into this family of sinners. And at times, once we have been indoctrinated and baptized into this family, we begin to see outside of these walls and want to protect we say that person doesn't fit or this thing doesn't fit and we begin to try to put new wine into old wineskins. We, in a sense, try to protect the old and the tradition and the routines and all these things in the past and it's, it's subtle but it might be as if Jesus is saying there's something new happening. I haven't quite figured out what to do with this. And I was also thinking with my small group on on Tuesday that when Jesus told these parables, a lot of times he just kind of told a story and then left it there. And sometimes the crowd would leave and they'd get it. And sometimes the crowd would leave and they have no idea what's going on. And sometimes the disciples would have to come up later and say, what in the world were you talking about? And it seems like this text might be one of those moments where Jesus is telling stories. And for us, once we dip into that ancient world and try to figure out what he's talking about with new wine into new wineskins and what he's doing that's radically different and challenging and rebellious and sort of pushing the boundaries, what that might look like for us to engage in that world. N.T. Wright says, when God is doing new things, we should join the party and not grumble because the new wine is threatening to burst our poor old bottles. I think within the American church, a lot of us are operating with poor old bottles. And Jesus is wanting to do something that's drastically different and new. And perhaps just thinking about last week, that might be with this radical inclusion and love that Jesus is emulating throughout the gospel. Perhaps what's new for us is to begin to allow Jesus to do his work and for us not to be judge and jury on who's in and who's out. Perhaps the newness for us is not to limit. Perhaps this newness is for us to become ambassadors of reconciliation and hope. That's only possible through Jesus. Perhaps this newness is shedding the old routines, the mindless routines, the the rituals and things that we do just because we do and begin to walk into a celebration of something that Jesus is offering us. Life, hope, forgiveness, mercy, grace. Perhaps the newness is to begin to extend that to others, people that need it, people that have written themselves off years and years and years ago because of what dad said, or because of what mom said, or because of what the teacher said, or because of what their friend said, or because of what the person at the table in the lunchroom said. Perhaps it's our job to let the new be new and to let this message be one of hope and love and acceptance through Christ. Perhaps that starts with you, where you begin to hear these words that are coming out of my mouth, and hopefully the Spirit begins to tug on those heartstrings and say, maybe this message is for me. Maybe this forgiveness is available for me right now. Maybe I don't have to live in the past. Maybe I don't have to live with all these voices in my head. Maybe. Perhaps for others of you, it's not just internal, but it's something that you have limited to others. It's the person that you work with that you can't stand. It's the person that you go to school with that just grates on your nerves. It's the person that you live next door to that you know doesn't love Jesus and you don't even talk about it. Perhaps the new 
is beginning to allow Jesus to work so radically through you, through his spirit, that your life is different because of it. Perhaps the new is not just sinning less, but it's fighting for justice. It's fighting for the poor and the oppressed. It's fighting for the people on the margins and the outskirts. And it's engaging them at the table. Perhaps the new becomes an identity where people say, you're hanging out with a lot of tax collectors and sinners. Perhaps the new is actually believing that the gospel matters. Perhaps the new is beginning to believe after months and years of having your prayers not answered the way that you think they should be, perhaps the new is beginning to believe that God is still at work and that God still cares and that God is still invested in you because you are created in his image. Perhaps the new is beginning to live in light of eternity beginning to live in light of the kingdom that's not just somewhere out there, but it's invading this place. Perhaps the new is becoming a partner with Jesus in this ridiculous work of restoration and reconciliation and transformation. I don't know what new wine into new wineskins looks like in your life, but I can imagine that for some time We've been trying to fit new wine into the old. And I can imagine that the little kid that comes by will say that thing's hissing like a snake. I hope that as we see Jesus being someone who was radical, who was dangerous, who was a little bit out there, who was challenging the structures and the authorities of the time, and we become people who don't challenge authority for challenging authority's sake, but we begin to question those old structures and begin to wonder if we are setting ourselves up for disastrous results or if we're allowing that spirit to work through us and things to change and things to happen and allowing that new wine to ferment and become the beautiful evidence of a kingdom that's invading this place right here and right now.